0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Sinner's Guide. We are the podcast that teaches you how to overcome sin, temptation. We have all kinds of topics ready to go for you tonight, and I am super, super excited to have Chris Date and Ross Burns on tonight to talk about hell. We're switching gears a little bit. We have been talking about overcoming sin, overcoming temptation, how to fight Uh, practically with god's holy spirits and tonight we're switching gears a little bit we've had both of the gentlemen on on the show before uh discussing their differing views about hell whether does it last forever is it it, is their conditions set to immortality all of that is coming up tonight we have chris date ross burns before we get to these guys i would love to introduce to y'all again, my favorite person, Noah Chalaya. What's up, buddy?
1: Hey, Tyler. How we doing?
0: Good, man. Good. So just, uh, I'm excited tonight. I, we've had both the guys on the show before, and you know, so now it's just, you know, we've had the individual side. Now we get to get them together and actually, you know, have kind of like an informal, you know, not really formal, just going back and forth, bouncing ideas off of each other. And I'm, I'm super excited to have them. What, what do you think about uh, Chris and uh, Ross from last time?
2: Absolutely. Any time, Tyler, we have the opportunity to explore Jesus's word and what His plan for our lives are,
1: the, the the more excited I am. And so these these individuals that all of your friends, really, Tyler, are all people that are highly devoted to Christ. And so it's it's always a pleasure anytime we have the opportunity to uh, to have those conversations.
0: And see it, it it is absolutely so. Michael Michael Keaton's back with us. Our our, our new co host on CSG. Michael, how's your week been going, buddy? Uh, it's been going great, brother. I am blessed. Good, good. So, before we get started into this, where, Mike, where do you stand? Is hell... Well, I, I know where you stand, but uh, tell your tell our listeners, where, where kind of do you stand on the hell debate? Is, it, is, is hell eternal conscious torment forever, or are there conditions set to immortality? What do you think, buddy?
3: Yeah, I would say I stand with uh, pretty much the traditional view the church has maintained. I would only add that, of course, being that we are eternal in one sense, or we're going to enter eternity in one sense, either for the good or the bad, or the next life, we'll say, for the sake of argument, uh, we know well that our understanding of time and space is going to be radically transformed. And so I would enter this discussion, uh, pretty carefully because I don't think any of us can even possibly imagine what time is going to look like to us. And I think that does affect, uh, this subject.
0: Uh, I I agree hundred percent. We had that conversation last night. As a matter of fact, Mike, we was talking about you know all all different types of things and how you know kind of time will play. Uh, you know, what will will there be time? Will it be an eternal now, so to say? How does one experience eternity? Right. So all all these different questions. But again, tonight, I well actually that that really does play in tonight. How eternity is going to be? Is it is it forever? I mean, obviously it's forever, but. Is it forever in hell? Is it, we know that we're going to spend eternity with God, right? But what about those in hell? That is the discussion we're having tonight. And and again, both of the guys have been on the show before. I'll introduce each. Let them give a little five minute, you know, talk about themselves a little bit and why we should listen to what they have to say. And just for those who don't know, Chris Day, what's up, brother? How you doing, man? It's been a while. I'm doing really well. It
2: has been a while, and it's a a real big honor to be back on your show. Thanks for having me on.
0: I appreciate you coming back, man. I always like I've told everybody because I was like Mike, I was, and and so here, here's where I stand now on the subject, right? I'm on the fence because of you, my friend, and that is no lie. Like the first time that I talked to Chris about this subject, he brought a perspective to conditional immortality that I've never heard before, right? And maybe it's because I haven't studied the subject. Maybe, I, I, I don't know. But what he was saying really made sense uh, to me. But, but enough of me talking, Chris. What is conditional immortality? Kind of give just you know a little summary about what exactly you believe and what you're going to be talking about tonight.
2: Sure, but before I do that, I need to yeah. first add a little bit of flesh to the bones that uh, are typically represented by the phrase eternal torment or eternal Please. conscious punishment. Because very often um, people that hold to Ross's view, um, they, they just think it's suffering forever, but that's actually only part of the story in, of, when it comes to the doctrine of eternal torment. Stretching back to the earliest Christian advocates of Ross's view, and here we're talking about the latter half of the second century, so roughly around 175 AD approximately, you've got authors like uh, uh, Tatian of Adiabene and uh, Athanagoras of Athens, and this tradition continues on through Augustine, and it continues on through Calvin, and even to the present day. And throughout this entire um, this entire tradition, Everyone has all believed that the resurrected lost will at that point be made bodily immortal and will live physically forever, albeit in hell. Um, So we're not just talking about, when we're talking about the traditional view, we're not merely talking about everlasting torment. That could be accomplished um, by disembodied souls forever. No, we're talking about resurrected immortals living physically forever in hell. And I'll be interested to hear if Ross stands in that tradition or if he is in a even smaller group of Christians than I'm in, because it is a tiny handful uh, of Christians that have held to a disembodied everlasting Mm -hmm. torment. Um, So that's, so so my point here is just to say that the doctrine of eternal torment, like the doctrine of universalism, is a form of unconditional immortality in the sense that Mm -hmm. God on the day of resurrection will indiscriminately universally give immortality to all embodied human beings, which are all human beings at that time. Mm -hmm. By contrast, we who identify with conditional immortality believe that immortality is not going to be given by God indiscriminately to all embodied humankind, but rather that he will only give immortality to those who meet a particular condition, namely the condition of being saved. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as Protestants, we would cash that out as being saved by grace through faith alone, et cetera. Um, and so uh so so we think that yes, the saved, when they rise from the dead, will be made. Immortal and will live forever. That's the clear teaching of First Corinthians 15 and a host of other passages. But what the Bible teaches is that the lost, when they are raised from the dead, will not be made immortal, will not live forever, but will instead be mortal and will indeed die a second time and never live again. Now, this is sometimes also called annihilationism because we believe, given what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, and uh, what we think are indications of this in other places, we believe that in the second death, it won't only be the body. That dies with the person who dies. It will also be the person's soul. Um, so, in the first death, when we die, if humans have immaterial souls or spirits that go on consciously uh, to exist separated from their bodies, um, and that does arguably seem to be what Jesus says in Matthew 10 28 about the first death. Um, if that's true, then in the second death, Jesus says the soul will be killed every bit as much as the body. So what happens when the body is killed or destroyed, it becomes inert, inactive, inanimate, lifeless, motionless, etc. cetera. And all of that will equally be true of the destroyed souls of the wicked in hell, according to scripture, with the result being that the entire person will cease to exist and never live or experience anything ever again. So that's the gist of these the debate here. It's a debate between unconditional immortality, that is, immortality granted to all humankind by God on the day of judgment. Versus conditional immortality. Only those who are saved will be be made immortal. The rest will die a second time and never live
0: again. And that's exactly the perspective that really got me thinking. And and, and the argument, conditional immortality, that we do see in the Bible that immortality, eternal life, is a gift given to those who are born again, who are regenerated. Ross, how's it going, man? Um, how, How would you respond uh to chris and, and just give you know what what's your view how how does it differ uh from chris's and uh how yeah just how would you respond bro
1: yeah thanks i'm, I'm definitely glad to be on uh just a, a quick background so my name's ross i yeah. mean ross burns um uh, i'm not all that interesting i'm uh you know working on my mdiv over at the western baptist theological seminary i'm a cook by day i uh uh uh, a chaplain's assistant in the national guard by weekend. Um, I got an awesome wife and a very adorable seven month old baby and a YouTube channel. You should definitely check out um, called burns eye view, a little stupid pun off my last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's just me. So to, just so you know where I'm coming from and I'm an advocate of the traditional view, the eternal conscious torment. Um, we need to hire another publicist because that name is kind of a mouthful. But, uh, yeah, so I would, I think the, maybe one thing that we could grab onto from what Chris said, um, it, you know, the describing the traditional view as, um, indiscriminate immortality, maybe, um, most of us hear that and kind of go, "Huh? Eh? <laughs> that's not exactly how we, we define ourselves. Um, there now, certainly there have been some in the past. I mean, you could look at something like the Fifth Ladder and Council, where they, I mean, they explicitly say um, all men are immortal. You know, they're, they're created immortal, and it's just you know a matter of where they're going to end up. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that many uh, in many evangelistic sermons. At the end, you know, you're an eternal being. The only question is where you're going to end up. And uh, I, I think the um, conditionalists are right to point out that that language is not very helpful or biblical. Um, And it's also not entirely, not I wouldn't say not relevant at all, but not entirely relevant to the question of whether human beings will continue to exist, um, granted existence, albeit by God, but whether they will continue to exist into eternity, being judged for their sins. And that's the position that I would take. I would take, um, I I mean, traditionalists also use the kind of, uh, if you look at someone like Millard Erickson, Millard Erickson's a traditionalist. Um, view on the subject, and he advocates for a view of the human composition that he calls, I think he calls, uh, conditional. I think conditional immortality. I'm not sure if that's exactly yeah. how it is, but it's the same kind of idea. It's uh, we're not, we don't uh, possess a saety. Only God is immortal in Himself, and He grants existence to everyone else. That's certainly, certainly valid. Um, the question is whether He will grant that existence to the wicked lost for eternity to judge them for their sins. And that's the position that I would take.
0: Okay. So, Chris, just given kind of what Ross said, um, how would you respond uh, to that?
2: Well, I begin by pointing out that it's it's convenient for people like Ross and, and some other people today to try and claim as though it's just like some traditionalists through church history have said this, but, but that's, but that's honestly um, obfuscation. It's, it, it's, it's hiding the reality. So, you know, I, I've got a slide deck up in front of me that I've used and expanded over the years at, at various conferences and things. And I'm not going to read through these quotes. I'll trust that people can go and look these up for themselves, uh, to, but, or, or watch some of my videos. But I just want to give an example of the kind of people that we're talking about and the kind of time span we're talking about. So I already mentioned Tatian and Athanagoras from the latter half of the second century. Augustine of Hippo says these things as well. Anselm of Canterbury, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, John MacArthur, John Piper, Robert Peterson, Mark Driscoll, Wayne Grudem. And this is just a sampling. Now, the point that I'm getting at is that all of these and 99.9999 or more percent of traditionalists throughout church history have had no qualms whatsoever about explicitly saying that the resurrected lost will be made immortal physically and will physically live forever in hell. There's simply no disputing it. Um, when somebody like Ross, and, and I'm not trying to pick on him, there are a lot of traditionalists today who do this, who who recognize that the Bible militates against the traditional view. And so they're trying to figure out some way to remove the parts that make it so clearly contradictory to Scripture. So, I mean, I get it, um, but there just is no hiding what the tradition has said. And so with the utmost of respect for Ross, whom I deeply admire and and, and respect, um, no, it's not the case that this debate is simply about the everlasting existence of the wicked, because again, that could be accomplished in a disembodied soul forever. But the Bible says that both the saved and the lost will be resurrected and that the lost will be thrown body and soul into Gehenna. And they're not zombies whose bodies are dead and have no, and all they are are mindless, lifeless machines, right? Physical flesh machines. No, these are living, breathing immortals in hell who are, have, who have muscles that contract and relax. They have lungs that expand and collapse and so on and so forth. Um, and this has been the universal testimony of traditionalists for 1800 years, roughly. So if Ross wants to have a debate with somebody about the everlasting existence of the evil or of the wicked, like as disembodied souls, then he can find somebody to debate that on. But I'm interested in debating the actual positions that the church has or that have existed within the church. And those, and the difference between those two positions really is a difference about immortality and enduring life, not merely existing forever.
0: Ross, if I could ask you, um, if I could just ask you one question real quick, and then I'll give the mic to uh, to Mike, because <laughs> um, I know he's, he's dying to ask questions. What is the difference for you between existence and life? Well, I think uh, biblically we're
1: forced to um, make some, I, well, at least this is my position. I don't think Chris would necessarily agree with this, but I mean, I would look at something like luke uh, 16 the uh, parable or story or whatever you want to call it that jesus is explaining to um to his audience where he describes a man who dies but continues to exist afterwards two men actually lazarus and the rich man so i think biblically we have to have um, some kind of view of conscious existence of a dead person uh, whether that's disembodied or whether that's uh, in the final resurrection afterwards Uh, a kind of, now I would, I would hold to answering what Chris said a little bit earlier. I would hold to maybe what I could call a tertium quid. So certainly not a disembodied kind of thing, but I'm also not willing to say that it's exactly the same as our bodily experience. Now I would prefer some more, I guess, principled ambiguity when it comes to the the physical state of the loss, just as our present condition is only a, a, a dim reflection of what our glorified body will be like I think our present condition is a present condition is only a dim reflection of what the eternally lost you know, metaphysics will be like so I would prefer to stay away from terms like immortality stay away from terms like that when describing the lost wicked but I more or less understand where the church has been coming from. I just think their language has been sloppy. I'm not rejecting their language. I'm just preferring to be a little bit more careful and clear when I'm describing that.
0: Sure, sure. And and we we have to be, especially in these days and age, you know, whenever everybody's trying to change the meanings of words, right? Words have meaning, and we have to to understand that. Michael, uh, my co-host, brother, go ahead, man. You've heard both sides now. Questions, comments, concerns, what... What do you got, man?
3: Well, uh, a couple of con- concerns for a couple of things that uh, Chris had said. Uh, first, I would start. Uh, Chris seemed to pretty strongly assert that uh, that Scripture was just so against the traditional view that, that those that hold it are, are sort of almost forced to flee from Scripture or, or come up with uh, ways to explain Scripture away. And I would say at that point that we must be reading different Scriptures because I don't see that to be the case at all. Uh, to a second thing that Chris said uh, – it may well be the case that the church traditionally has taught the the physical body thing, and I don't know that anybody's ever went into detail to say that they had lungs, but at any rate, I'll just say this it is very possible because I've done it to read a ton of church history to read a ton of modern theologians and never never see that argument. They may believe it, but it's very very possible to read all sorts of material about hell about hell throughout church history and never see the the physical body comments
0: uh or assertions. So it sounds like, then, the the debate is more so what happens at the resurrection. Is there a difference between—I mean, obviously there is going to be a difference between the lost and the saved, right? But what is that difference whenever it comes to existence, so to say? Does that make sense? That's kind of the concerns that I'm having just hearing everybody uh, kind of talk. Well, um, I, yeah.
3: I, just, I think when we're talking about death, because I, I don't get— uh, for instance, from, I'm thinking immediately of Revelation 20:14, 20, Revelation 21, 8. When I, when I read the term the second death, I don't get the, uh, I don't pick up there that it's explicitly stating, hey, this is going to be the kind of death you think of when you think about non-existence in human terms, because certainly life on the, from the eternal perspective is not simply being conscious. Life is directly tied to our relationship with Christ and if we're in Christ or not. So I don't know that we should automatically assume that we should, uh, think about death, uh, uh, in relation to that either, as as opposed to just, well, death for us in human terms means to not be conscious uh, on this side of eternity. And so that must be- Tyler,
2: I need to really interject here for a moment. May I? Yeah,
0: please. Yeah, Absolutely.
2: Right. So, so notice that it has been attributed to me the position that to die means to cease to be conscious. You will not find me saying anything or implying anything like that in 10 years that I've been covering this topic. So, I frankly get really frustrated and I'm not blaming, um, I think that was Noah speaking or, or maybe it was Michael. I'm not sure. But Michael, either way, yeah. okay, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to insult him or, or blame him or sure. accuse him. All I'm saying is maybe instead of assuming we understand what the other person believes, Maybe we should ask the other person what they believe life means.
3: Yeah, certainly I wasn't trying to assert that Chris was stating that the second death means not to be conscious. So I wasn't saying that at all.
2: Uh, or or the death that. at all. I mean, what you said was, I don't know why we should assume that death means a cessation of consciousness. And I'm thinking like, well, I agree. I don't think death means a cessation of consciousness. So what relevance does that have to our dispute here?
3: Well, I would. Well, the dispute here, from where I understand it, again, I'm only defending uh uh a position of eternal torment here and I, I would argue that the physical body part is almost and there's no way really to make it a, a, I don't think a, a die hard argument as far as the physical body goes but to me that would be the corollary to say that okay well if this is the second death what do we know as death to not be anymore and so uh it seems to me that even saying the destruction of the physical body uh, that that would be corollary uh in the next state either I don't think would be necessary
2: I just don't understand, and I apologize. I'm sure it's a limitation on my part. All I'll say is that if, if if the traditionalists in this call that are not really traditionalists, because they don't think that the resurrected bodies of the lost will be immortal and live forever, but they do think that either the lost will suffer forever as disembodied souls or as... Connected to lifeless zombie bodies or something, then we can we can discuss that. Mm. But I just want to make it clear from the outset that if we make the debate about those two those two views, my view versus okay. the view that the wicked will simply suffer forever, but will not be immortal and live forever, then that's fine. But in so doing, I now become the 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 uh, I become a representative of a larger percentage of church history than even my opponents, which is great. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. I'd be happy about that. Yeah. Um and I and I also want to be careful not to throw um, nearly 2,000 years of the most stalwart, the, the most brilliant theologians in church history under the bus as being sloppy. Um, I'm comfortable saying they were wrong, um, because I have the Bible to demonstrate that they're wrong. Um, but I'm not comfortable saying, well, yeah, I want to agree with them, but I'm not going to. I think they were sloppy with this language. So if we want to shift the the goalpost to a debate about mere experience forever. I'm happy to do that because I think my position still comes out on top uh, overwhelmingly according to scripture, but I just want to make it sh- clear to the listeners that that's where the goalposts are being shifted to.
0: Right. And I and to clarify both sides, I want to ask both Chris and Ross the same question, and then I do want to shift to kind of get into scripture um, because, you know, all we have to come to the Bible, right? The, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. The Bible's our authority, right? And the problem that it seems that we're having, right, is that there are two different interpretations of the same text, right? The words are the same, but we have two different meanings going on. So let me ask this question real quick to both Chris and Ross. And, Ross, you can uh, take it first, if, if, if you would. Um, what is death uh, biblically? I would say that death is, uh, well, death is
1: not the intended result of human beings, as you see from, um, you know, Genesis chapter three, right? That's not what we were supposed to be like. We were supposed to be uh, a united composition of humanity, um, you know, physical body and soul, immaterial. That's what we were supposed to be like in harmony with each other and harmony with God. And death is the unnatural thing that happens to us where those things are separated And, um, so that's what I would, death is the antithesis of life. And I wouldn't define life as, no, we can get into this. I don't want to straw man Chris here, but I would, I, uh, death is the antithesis of life and life does not simply mean the cessation of existence. Um, I'm sure we can get into that more. I don't want to, I don't want to irritate Chris further,
0: (laughs) but for uh, you, just, just out of curiosity, Ross, just to clarify for you, does death mean cessation of existence? No, I don't think so. I don't think the
1: first or second death
0: implies or entails a cessation cessation of existence. Okay, all right, Uh, Chris. uh, Same question: What is uh, biblical death?
2: Well, so first we would need to answer the question, what does the Bible define, uh, how does the Bible define life for human beings? And that answer actually comes even before Genesis 3, because in Genesis 1 and 2, human beings and a number of other animals are said to become living creatures, nefesh chayah, when their lifeless body of flesh is united to God's breath, his life-giving breath of life. Um, so biblically to be alive as a human being is to be embodied and breathing, or at the very least developing toward being, uh, breathing. So you might be a developing zygote, for example. So biblically to be a living human being is to be embodied and breathing the life-giving spirit of God, uh, the life-giving breath of God, whether or not, it also entails the unity with a, um, uh, with an immaterial soul. Now, after Genesis one, comes Genesis three. And there, whatever, however you understand God's warning in Genesis chapter two, that Adam would die on the day that he eats of the fruit. And that's something that we can certainly dig into because it doesn't support the tradition. Um, but even if you, we could put that aside and just look at Genesis three, because in Genesis three, uh, verse 20, I'm pulling it up here right now, 22, the Lord speaks saying, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the narrator cuts God off and says, therefore, the God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So the point is, in order to prevent Adam from going on and living, that is, breathing God's breath of life and being embodied, to prevent him from doing that forever, God withholds the tree of life, access to the tree of life from him, and of course, that guarantees his eventual demise. He dies a few hundred years later when the breath of God leaves him, all right? Um, and we see this actually in the New Testament as well. So for example, in James, um, James says that the body without the spirit or the breath is dead. So the, uh, notice he doesn't say that the spirit is dead as well. He says the body's dead. So when a person ceases to be embodied, they are dead, and their body is dead, whatever happens to the breath of God and whatever happens to a a, a spirit. But their soul or their spirit, if that's what it's referring to, the immaterial spirit of man, that's not dead. So death doesn't nearly mean separation, because the only thing that is said to be dead when a person dies is the body. But Jesus says that what is true of the dead body in the first death Namely, that it's inanimate and it's inert, it's motionless, it's inactive, etc. He says in Matthew ten twenty eight that that will be true of the soul as well, and this is really important because um, classically, classically theologians have said that the human soul is pure consciousness. It's an immaterial, simple substance, and that substance is pure consciousness. So, if a pure consciousness, the the substance that is known as the soul. Becomes as lifeless, inert, inactive, inactive, and inanimate as the body does. Well, then obviously I win the debate. So, so just to reiterate, just to sum up what I've said, the Bible defines life for a human being as being embodied and uh, either and and either right now breathing the life giving breath of God or uh, in development toward being able to breathe. And it defines death as what happens when an embodied person lacking access to the tree of life eventually. No longer is embodied in breathing. That's the biblical definition of life and death for human beings. But praise be to God that He promises one day we will once again have access to that tree of life. We see that in Revelation 21, where only the saved have access to its fruit. Um, so, anyway, that's that's my very long-winded answer to the question.
0: <laughs> sure, and I've I've been going for those listening uh, on CSG and, and the centers dot com, uh, we we and our YouTube channel actually we've been going through the Book of John, right. And, and uh, Jesus, uh, there's there's just so many things in John, right? and I, I, I love it, man. I, I, I truly do. Um, I, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there because I'm thinking about two different things. Um, Ross, just real quick, would you would you agree um, with what Chris said about life and death and the way the Bible defines that in, in Genesis and just all throughout the Bible? Um, it, what what would you disagree with Chris on with, given what he said, or would you disagree?
1: Yeah, there's not much I would disagree with how he's describing, um, you know, life and death. I gave a similar sort of answer. Um, I'm right. sure we wouldn't agree on all of that, but, uh, you know, just to push back on the idea of the, the Matthew 28 reference, um, yeah, I think Chris makes an interesting argument, definitely a good point, um, saying that, you know, the, the second death will be like the first and that the body in the first is uh, rendered inert and motionless and, and not active, and then that's what the, the spirit of man is going to be like in the second death. I would, I would just ask, um, why can't it mean, uh, why couldn't that phrase mean that since the body is brought to ruin, you know, since it's corrupted, um, that so the soul will be in the second death; it will be ruined and corrupted and destroyed in that sense. That's how I would understand Matthew twenty-eight, and that's my expectation for both the first and second death, especially in the light of other passages in the New Testament that we can certainly get into later.
2: Sure. And and I would, so just to come back on that, that's an interesting take on Matthew 10, 28. Um, so what that, what that must assume is that what Jesus means by kill the body and destroy the body is cause it to become in some sort of state of corruption. The problem with that, however, is that human bodies are already corrupting and corrupted. So there's nothing particularly unique about a dead body in that it's, you know, insofar as it's corrupting or corrupted. Uh, There's nothing unique about it in that regard. Living human bodies are as well. Um, What's more, when you look at how the word apolomy, translated destroy, is used in Matthew 10, 28, elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, it, it doesn't mean to corrupt. It means to slay. So, for example, when Herod is um, uh, trying to trick the Magi into telling him when they find the baby Jesus um, so that he can apolomy the baby Jesus, he doesn't want to corrupt the baby Jesus. He doesn't want to. His interest is not in causing the baby Jesus's body to simply become in a state of corruption, uh, an increased state of corruption from when it was alive. No, he wants to make it Dead. And the same is true of the, uh, the the Pharisees when they seek to kill or slay or apolomy, destroy, the adult Jesus. Their interest is not in rendering Jesus's body corrupted. Their interest is in killing him. So I don't think that that um, approach is going to work with Matthew 10, 28. And it certainly doesn't work with what has been the traditional view of hell for 1800 years.
0: Ross?
1: Yeah, I mean, well... I'm not sure if it wouldn't work with what's been traditionally the hell of uh, the view of hell for 1800 years. I think I'm uh, more or less in line with that, but I would just wonder um, if kill can't mean ruin. Uh, I, I just don't see how it's an adequate response. Maybe you can sort out my thinking here. Maybe I've got this all, I've, I've got this wrong, but um, I don't know it doesn't help me if you're saying, Kill can't mean ruin because kill
2: means kill. I don't – it seems okay. like yeah. – I understand. So, so to clarify what I said, and actually this isn't so much of a clarification as much as a repetition, what, uh, what I said was that in terms of a body being corrupt, there's no, nothing particularly unique about a dead body being corrupt versus a living body. The living body is in a state of corruption as well. We see that elsewhere in scripture. Um, uh, G- Paul talks about this body of death, meaning this body that is doomed to die. Um, he, he, he talks about this this body of corruption must put on an, a body of incorruption, right? So he's not, so so bodies now, living bodies are already corrupt. So corruption can't be what is true of a killed body that is the distinct um, the, the thing that the word kill is trying to capture. Um, no, all everybody knows, uh, except in this one debate, when they try to apply different meanings to the word, that what it means to kill a body or any human person is to render that, per, that body or that person lifeless. That is the fundamental difference between a dead body and a living body. Not that the one is corrupted and the other is not, but that the one is living and
0: the other is not.
3: Tyler, if I could uh, just interject for just a second.
0: I was getting ready to ask you if you wanted to. Yeah, go ahead. Well,
3: it, it seems to me that we're getting almost uh, into sort of a medically precise discussion of the human body. And one thing I think that's important, I think, to keep in mind here is we don't expect the eternal body on the glorified side to look exactly like the one we have here. And if we're going to say that there's a glorified, that there's a resurrected body uh, for those that uh, don't make it to a glorified side, then there's no reason to assume that that body is going to follow the the medical laws of anatomy. Uh, there are
2: Well so that's interesting because it is true that the Bible and, uh, and and Christian tradition both identify the glorified body of resurrected believers as being different in some fundamental ways. Namely our bodies now are mortal. Our glorified bodies will be immortal. Our, our bodies right now are um, driven by uh, material needs. We must eat, and, and the, the need to eat becomes more and more our concern, the more and more hungry we go, and so on and so forth. Uh, our bodies now are subject to pain, disease, and aging, and so forth, and all of those things won't be true with the resurrection body. What we don't, however, have any evidence for, biblically or in Christian tradition, is that the glorified, resurrected the bodies of the saved will be anything less or different than physical bodies made up of matter. That's There's simply no basis for that in scripture or tr- Christian tradition. Um, so so but moreover, I don't understand why we would look to the glorified body, uh, the glorified nature of this of the resurrection bodies of the saved and say that that grants us license to say that the resurrection bodies of the lost will be fundamentally different different from their bodies now because it's not mm, resurrection. Right. It's not resurrection that changes the nature of a body. It's glorification. Um, uh, uh, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus did not get a suddenly different kind of body, but that is a resurrection. It's a coming back to life. So so if we want to talk about saying, well, maybe we can entertain the notion that the resurrected bodies of the lost are of a fundamentally different nature than their present bodies. But what I would like to see is any evidence whatsoever from Scripture to substantiate that, let alone the, the tradition. Right. Well, and to be fair, there's... I
3: would, I think we have to admit, to be fair, that much of what we're going to discuss, if we're going to discuss this subject, is going to be extra-biblical speculation.
2: Uh, uh, that's not my interest. But if you want to, that's certainly fine. I'm not going to put any constraints on what you can or cannot bring into the debate. But I'm not interested in speculation. I'm based on the explicit testimony of Scripture and uh, right. the thinking of the giants in church history.
0: Right, exactly. So just kind of... Mm-hmm. Dude, this is so like I'm just I'm blown away literally by both of you guys. I mean Chris, you are so articulate you you know this position, you know this a lot better than I do right And, and so I'm just really listening as a spectator, right And so what I'm hearing is that there whenever we are resurrected right and, and, and the Bible we, we have revelation from God, we know, certain things about the resurrection, about the resurrection bodies. And I think, Chris, you're right, that whenever we start comparing... The, here's the thing. The Bible contrasts life and death throughout the entire pages of Scripture. The Bible is com- contrasting a lot of different things. But the main thing I think it, it, it contrasts, and I stand corrected on this, is life and death. And to me, and, and I, re- I do stand corrected here, it seems like those two things are opposite with... With eternal life and glorification and just consciousness and just being with God, right, whatever that means exactly, it would seem that the exact opposite would be happening for those people who don't get those benefits. I call them benefits of salvation, right, gifts or promises, right, eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. I'm looking at Matthew 10.28, and and forgive me if we've read it already. I just want to read it again for everyone listening. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And, and, and Chris, uh, Apollo, that's the word there for destroy, correct? Yes. Okay. So with that, oh, hold
2: on though, though really yeah. quick, and, and I just want to Please. add that it's not merely the word apolemy. Um Okay. I want to be careful not to get too far into the weeds of of Greek. Uh, sure, sure. E- except I'll I'll follow you guys as lead. But what's important about this is that in Greek verbs have a number of different characteristics, including what Greek uh, grammarians call voice what linguists call transitivity and so forth. And it's not merely that it's the word of It's also that it's being used in what's called the active voice. And it's also being used transitively to describe what one mm. personal agent does to another. And when used in that way throughout Matthew, Mark and Luke, it consistently means to slay or kill. So I just wanted to point that
0: out. Right, right. And, and that's exactly, and that's what I'm getting back to, you know, with the eternal life, you know, comes, <laughs> I've heard it say before with, e- or, or, the, the contrast is eternal life and eternal death, right? And and see, here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. Both Ross and Chris, and correct me if I'm wrong, would agree with that statement, right? But it means two totally different things to you guys, right? Eternal death.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. Although, to be fair, are... also, eternal yeah. death isn't a phrase you find in Scripture either.
0: Right. No, no, I, I agree 100%. So I guess just to ask what... We, we all know contrasting, right? We, and we know how the Bible we've heard it, the biblical definition for life. So my question, Ross, is what would the contrast of that be to or uh, of eternal life? I, I just don't see how one goes on suffering forever and that's still not some aspect of living. Does, does that make sense? I mean, again, I'm not studying on this like you guys are. That's why I invited you all on to ask you questions about this because I, I this is a topic that's really important. So is there what is that contrast from the eternal conscious torment side? Yeah, I mean, I, would, uh, I may have mentioned this earlier, but probably yeah. good to mention it again. Um, Please, yeah.
1: In Luke 16, we see a very, very dead man who is experiencing conscious, eternal torment. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not eternal, uh, pardon me. Um, in the intermediary Satan in, in Hades, he's experiencing conscious torment, but I don't think anybody uh, could look at that person in Jesus's story and say, wow, that guy's definitely not dead. Um, so my definition of death uh, wants to include some his kind of- His body was dead though, right? Yes, his body Thank was, you. his. well, I mean, he was dead. He as a person was dead, even though he was- and his body was dead too, right? Uh, he was dead, which would include I'm, his body. Great. Okay. So, oh, so so personal death does include the death of the body. Uh, I, I don't want to split it up and just say okay. someone's body is dead while their soul is not. Jesus did that in Matthew ten twenty eight, didn't he? Well, he said they'll both be they'll both be killed. Well, before that, he says only the body is killed by men. Yeah,
2: I I see what you're saying. That's true. Okay. So anyway, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you so much. I apologize. I uh, I might have
1: been done there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so okay,
0: all right. So right. So do not be afraid for those who want to kill your body; they cannot touch yourself. Well, wait, wait hold on. new living translation. Do not fear those who kill the body, yeah, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So, Chris, I think I see your point. Is that the point that you're making for our listeners? Is that there is a with death with personal death there is an aspect of where yes that person's body is dead but there's something going on with the soul is that what you're saying or
2: well well, i'm saying that um there's a a separation from me right
0: yeah sorry well yeah
2: right so so in traditional christian what's called dualism um anthropological dualism um when a person uh, a, a person is a composite um of Material body and immaterial soul or spirit, or in the case of trichotomists, immaterial soul and spirit. And what we're looking at in Luke 16, if that dualistic view is, is, is faithful to Scripture, is exactly what um, Ross uh, rightly identified. Namely, that this is taking place in the intermediate state. The rich man and the poor man are both dead. And their bodies are both dead. But if we take this as some sort of a historical narrative or a realistic story, their disembodied immaterial souls and or spirits are in the underworld. Um, Abraham's bosom in the case of the poor man and the bad part of Hades in the case of the rich man. Now, um, Ross has, understandably, is trying to argue that clearly here we have somebody who exists but is not alive. And I agree. Right. I already mentioned that death does not mean the cessation of existence. But in the case of these people's bodies, the poor man and the rich man, they are lifeless. Their bodies are lifeless, inanimate, inert, motionless. Right. And Jesus says that death, the kind of death that we see in the dead body of a person, will extend to the souls of people in uh, eternity as well.
0: Right. That's the point
2: that I was trying to make.
0: Right, Ross. Um, we got about fifteen minutes left until the break. Um, and, and I know we've kind of, <laughs> brother, and 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 it wasn't. Trust me. In the next hour, or in the next hour, um, for, from nine, or, or I'm sorry, from eight to nine, um, we want to, or for you, I want to kind of let you have, you know, a positive, um, because you kind of been defending like for me and Chris. You know, we we've kind of been hitting on that. So if we could switch it up uh, in the next hour and maybe you know let's uh you, you get what i'm trying to say so just real um yeah, do, 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 let me think mike um just out of curiosity brother you you're listening and what uh what do you have to say so far with the discussion kind of going on i already i know you go ahead uh,
3: yeah i think maybe i'm I, i'm just maybe it's my fault i, maybe I didn't do my homework but I was under the impression yeah. that the,
2: that
3: the position that, uh, that Ross was taking was eternal conscious torment. And I've heard Chris really interact a lot with the fact that, uh, there's not going to be physical bodies. And I think he maybe went further to say that's the only thing he's arguing. But yeah. I am interested to know, uh, his position, uh, what, what his answer is to eternal conscious torment, uh, with, with no regard to a body. I mean, is he, is his view actually that there is no eternal conscious torment or simply that there's no physical body, uh, for the, uh, damned?
2: Right. So I, I've actually answered this question multiple t- multiple times now. When I was explaining what conditional immortality is, I also added that it's called annihilationism because we say that the kind of death that happens to the body in the first death, namely it becomes inert, inanimate, lifeless, and active, extends to the soul in the second death. And I said that if the soul is pure consciousness, as Christians have affirmed classically, then for a conscious soul to cease to be inanimate, to, to, to become inert, and lifeless, and inactive, would be to cease to be conscious. So I am addressing the the position known as eternal conscious torment. The reason, however, that I'm being a little aggressive here is because I'm unwilling to let le- to let listeners um, get the impression that somehow there's this view called eternal torment that. Only some people in church history have happened to tack onto the view of immortal uh, bodies in hell. That is the view known as eternal torment since roughly 170 AD. Now you, the people in this call can take a view that is even more a minority in church history than my view. That's fine, but I'm just wanting listeners to know that. So, so if we want to focus on the possibility that the wicked could be disembodied in torment forever, we can talk about that um, or, or the tertium quid that Ross wants to talk about. I, I'd be happy to talk about that, too, but I don't want to let listeners I don't want to do a disservice to listeners by hiding the fact that, that this idea that the resurrected bodies that are lost in hell aren't, in fact, immortal um, in your view. I, I don't I don't want to hide that the, the fact that that is an extreme minority in church history, much more of a minority than even my view.
3: I would say that's probably pretty, pretty well hidden already because I can think of a lot of really, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the content doesn't, just doesn't dive into that area. Uh, so it may very well be the belief. I'm not going to challenge you on that, but it's very possible to, to read a lot of church history, uh, to read reform confessions. A lot of the early fathers didn't go into very much detail, but you, you can certainly walk away with eternal torment and never even touch upon the physical body things. Uh, that's very possible at any rate.
2: Well, right. every single person in church history typically writes a lot more than merely about hell, so of course it's possible to uh, to, to avoid seeing everything that they've written.
0: Just kind of out of curiosity, real quick: is this within church history? Is this topic a big discussion? Do we see a lot of uh, of talk about this, or is it? Are, are there more? Di- are there different things that are more important in those times and those contexts? To my knowledge, and, and I'll let.
2: Mike and Ross chime in if, if they think that this is not um, fully accurate. Sure. My understanding is that um, the topic of hell has never received the kind of focused church-wide attention that we see in, say, the ecumenical councils where they focused on Christology and on the hypostatic union and so forth. It, rather, instead, what we see is that there are points in time in church history where there is a dispute and where that dispute is argued about, but it's never taking like center stage. Um, So, for example, um, Augustine acknowledges the existence of people who hold to other views of hell than himself. Um, Indeed, my view is the one represented by the earliest writings, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, Irenaeus of Lyon, and on and on I could go. Um, and, and he recognized the existence of them, but neither he nor anybody else in that era called people who held to other views than the traditional one heretics. They never anathematized them or anything like that. The first time that happens, arguably, is roughly around uh, 500 in what I think is the Second Council of Constantinople. They appear, arguably, I want to stress that, to anathematize um, uh, Origenian universalism. Um, but, and, and then the Roman Catholic Church, which none of us should really care much about anyway, in terms of their authority, um, they anathematize annihilationism in roughly 1100. But apart from that, the most you have is that the topic of hell is one area of dispute among many. So take the, for example, the fundamentalist controversy that began in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, the fundamentalists were understandably pushing back against a trend um, whereby liberal and modernist Christians were abandoned abandoning a lot of um, cherished and biblical views. Um, But one of the things that many of them denied was the doctrine of eternal torment. Of course, most of them were going for universalism or something, not annihilationism. But nevertheless, the, the fundamentalists saw that there was this challenge from liberalism and from modernism, um, to the traditional view of hell. And so they included it in their list of fundamentals. But the thing that I'm trying to stress here is that that was just one in a list of fundamentals. It wasn't the, 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 at the, the center stage. So that would be my, my claim is that yes, there have been periods of time in church history where it has received attention, but never, it has never taken center stage and never received the full attention of the church all at once, the way that certain other topics have
0: right and the reason I bring that up is because it does seem like this conversation is starting to catch fire uh, you know no pun intended there but it is it's we're, we're starting to talk about these things more and more because and, and I mean all y'all can correct me if I'm wrong on this one but within ch- within the church tradition within cr- the Christian tradition um, of, of all of all spectrums, right? There is a lot now of more so I'm going to interpret the Bible the way I the way I see it, and if I don't like what my pastor is saying about it, I'll just go find a different church that agrees with me. Is that fair to say?
2: Uh, whom are you asking? Me?
0: I, j- just anyone uh, that wants to jump in on that. Um.
2: Well, here, I'll just throw a, real, a very fast two cents uh, yeah. relative to the other lengthy answers I gave. I do think that we are in something of a unique position like that. Although I suspect that there's a degree to which you have this sort of me and my Bible under a tree attitude ever since the Reformation reformer, you know, reformed Christians have never taken that view, but it is how we are caricatured by, for example, Roman Catholics, and unfortunately, you do have a lot of fundamentalists and independent uh, churches who do treat it as if it's me and my Bible under a tree, not giving a darn about what anybody else has said in Christian history. Um, I suspect yeah. that that's not the case with any of us here, thankfully. But I'll just add that the reason why I think that if this current time might be a little bit more like that than, say, 400 years ago or whenever the, you're roughly at the Reformation is because of the advent of the internet right so you may think that you're hearing something new uh, and a focus and a change of mind that's fairly new but there's a degree to which that's only the case because you have access to conversations that are going around going on around the world in a way that nobody before you has had
0: right right um ross same question really i mean do you see kind of you know winding down to go into the uh, second half where I do want to focus on a positive case for eternal conscious torment. What I was saying a while ago, we've heard conditional immortality, right? And so I do want to shift to more of a positive. Let's talk about where, where does the Bible, cause I don't, I don't think I've heard it yet. Um, and, and again, like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, brother, but, uh, where does scripture really get into the eternal conscious torment, right? Where, where do you see that? Actually, let me change the question. Where Getting ready to lead in into the second hour. Where do you see that? Um, just kind of summarized real quick. Yeah, I think most clearly I see it in the book of Revelation.
1: Uh, certainly there are arguments to be made elsewhere. Um, you know, for instance, we were talking about the implications of the parable from Luke 16 and uh you know various other, various other texts we've talked about. And uh, I mean we can get into the church history stuff from later on. Wouldn't fully agree with everything Chris said about church history, but um, certainly, I think he's spot on about uh, today with, uh, in regards to the caricature of reformed Christianity and, and so forth. But uh, my strongest case for um, the existence of eternal conscious torment would be the eternal conscious torment that I see in Revelation 14, 20, and and even twenty one. Okay.
0: Okay. And and can do you just out of curiosity, you've got uh, do you got Revelation fourteen pulled up? I've got it in front of me. Do you have in front of you, Chris? Uh, can you read that uh, that verse that uh, I'm sure you know what Ross is referring to? Can you just read yeah. that in context and for our listeners before we go into the second break?
2: Yeah. So Ross actually mentioned three passages in Revelation, but if you mean the first one, Revelation fourteen, yeah, 14. verses nine yeah. to eleven. Mm-hmm. This is how the English Standard Version reads: "And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, quote." If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name.
0: And Ross, um, just Like I said, we're going to get into this here in just a second. Um, But summarize, if you could, what you're talking about, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, right? That's a literal, you take that literally as this is is what's happening to these people forever and ever. They're being tormented day and night, correct?
1: Yeah, obviously there's great symbolism in the book of Revelation. Uh, It's using these fantastic imagery. Um, you know, and certainly there are instances we, I mean, we don't really think that a, uh, you know, a prostitute is going to be riding a beast through the streets, having a great time. And, um, yeah, there's certainly imagery, you know, that's not meant to be taken literally. I, am not a, um, you know, an arch dispensationalist, literalist kind of guy when it comes to the book of revelation, certainly, but, uh, we can certainly look at the book and see the images that were uh, being brought up. And it's just very difficult for me to understand how uh, smoke of the torment that's going up forever and ever, how that could be symbolic, how the conscious torment there could be symbolic of cessation of existence. That's a difficult one for me to swallow. And it's one of the bigger reasons why I haven't abandoned the traditional position
0: on hell. Right. Right. So, um, going in then, to the next hour, I want to thank each and every person listening. Continue to listen. We're going to take a break here in just a second. And I just, I just, again, man, I just want to thank both of you all for coming on and, and, and continuing to have this conversation, right? I'm sure within this, a lot of things, and I know with my conversations with people even about Calvinism, right, a lot of the same things get said over and over <laughs> for me, and I feel like I'm repeating myself you know a lot so I'm sure that goes both ways you know with, with you guys in these conversations right and so I just wanted to thank you both for your generosity toward one another and your hospitality it's just you know to see this is what I want man to see brothers come together and, and discuss and talk about these things but we're getting ready to take a break come, we're coming right back though for the second hour Chris Date, Ross Burns, Michael Keaton I'm your host Tyler Fowler we will be right back I'm